of all five empirical senses of the human body, which are what? Sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. Okay, Of all five of those, which do you think is most connected to memory? Any guesses? You would think sight, right? So when you see something, it triggers a vivid memory, or maybe sound, you hear something. It's actually smell, believe it or not. Our olfactory senses, studies have shown, are the most connected to memory. So when you smell a certain thing, it brings back, it draws back a memory from maybe decades ago. And this is so true. If I smell formaldehyde, you guys know, you guys know what formaldehyde is? Uh, when I smell formaldehyde, I'm immediately transported back to junior high dissecting cats, <laughs> which is disgusting. <laughs> or uh, I don't know if you've ever been... To, there, there's a very particular incense that when I smell it, I, I go back to my freshman year. I, I'm like transported back to my, to my freshman year. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Catholic funeral mass, but sometimes the priest will take a, like a golden incense and he'll wave it around, all this incense that just fills the room. It's a very particular smell. And when I smell that, I'm immediately transported back to my freshman year when one of our associate football coaches passed away, Coach Simi. I mean, vividly. Like, I remember it like it's yesterday, just by a smell. Or, you know, we were, we were in Phoenix visiting my parents all week. We got back super late Friday night. Yesterday, I went for a walk. And, I, and just the smells of fall, you know, the crisp leaves, uh, the leaves change, and just the smell. It's like pumpkin spice wafting through the air. You know, apple, what is it, apple cider donuts. I don't know what, maybe that's just at our house. I don't know. But the autumnal aroma, aromas, if you will, immediately make us think of fall. So when you smell something, it makes you think of a person, a place, an experience, fragrance tied to something, to memory. So what should our fragrance as Christians be? What is our aroma to others? What should we smell like, so to speak, to others? Well, turn to John chapter 13. We are continuing in our series in the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, the Gospel of John. And we, uh, it, it's, I'm just so excited about this sermon series. It's been great. But let's, let's take those steps back up to the Upper Room where Jesus is meeting with his disciples the night before he's crucified. And he's teaching them, and he's praying with them, and he's demonstrating things to them. And in verse 1, it says something, just a very key phrase, very powerful. He loved them to the end. Jesus loved them to the end, to the fullest extent. He, Jesus loved them more than anyone could ever love the disciples. And he loves us more than anyone could ever love us. He loves us. He loved them to the end. And, and so today's passage is an explanation. It's a follow-up to the greatest of all motives, love. So if you guys would, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to be in verse 31. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. By this, the world, the, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You guys can be seated. 
So, when he had gone out, who's he? Who had left the building? Not Elvis, Judas. Judas had left the building, and when Judas had departed, when he had gone out. So remember, Judas was not a believer. We looked at that two weeks ago. But the rest of them were. Jesus says that in verse 10. He says, all of you are clean. All of you are pure. You are righteous by faith in him. All except one, he says. All except Judas. And so his teachings, after Judas leaves, are directed only to Christians, to believers, So don't blow by this significant phrase. Love one another is not a command for the world. It is a command only for believers. Now, I'm not saying that people who don't believe can't love. You may be thinking about an atheist neighbor, an agnostic friend. Well, yeah, but they're very loving, and that is probably true. They can love because they're still made in the image of God. That means Humanity reflects God. Humanity reflects aspects and characteristics of God, and God is love, 1 John 4. So we have the ability, the capability to love because we are made in the image of God. However, unbelievers have not been spiritually transformed by faith in Jesus. And so they cannot love as God loves. They are still self-oriented, Unbelievers cannot love as God loves because they don't have the love of God in them. They don't have the propensity for utmost sacrificial selflessness. They are not inclined towards self-giving love. Now more on that shortly. But look at verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, okay, listen, here's what he says. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. I guarantee you, if we were in that room and Jesus said that, you would probably respond, as I imagine the disciples did, what? (laughs) What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, simply this. Jesus is saying, I am glorified by the Father, and I bring glory to the Father. So there are two powerful implications, two powerful truths here. Number one, Jesus is claiming to be God. And number two, Jesus is saying that there will be something so powerful, so noteworthy that is about to happen that it will bring glory to himself and to the Father. And so he says, the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Come on, Sunday school answer. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus is speaking in third person. The Son of Man. It's actually his favorite self-designation. Is his, his most often used reference of himself. And he says it over and over, over 80 times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a very deliberate title. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So son of man, son of man, he says it over and over. Now, is Jesus referring to himself as son of man to point out his humanity? And then he says son of God to point out his divinity? That's how a lot of people think. Maybe, perhaps. I think yes and no. He is indeed fully God and fully man. Two natures, one person. Humanity, divinity combined into Jesus. Fully God, 
fully man. But both titles, Son of Man and Son of God, have elements that refer to his deity and his humanity. He's actually referring directly to a passage in the Old Testament. So look at this. Look at Daniel chapter 7. In, I saw the, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Come on now, if that's good news, you might want to say, there we go. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus is saying that he is this royal messianic figure who, who leaves his throne in heaven, who comes on the clouds, who descends from heaven, and he's given by the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, he's given all authority, all sovereignty, all power, all glory, an everlasting, eternal kingdom, and all peoples, all nations, all languages will serve and worship him. Jesus is this exalted, divine human referred to here. And so Son of Man, Jesus uses strategically to point to his divinity and his humanity. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish high council, and he's being tried, he's being judged And the high priest says, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Speak to us clearly. And Jesus says, I am. It is as you have said. And you will see the Son of Man who is seated at the right hand of the Almighty coming on the clouds. He's referring to this passage in Daniel 7. And you know what the high priest does? He tears his robe and he says, blasphemy! He's blaspheming. He is claiming to be God. So don't let anyone ever say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's one of the purposes of why John wrote his gospel. Jesus, over and over and over, is claiming to be the God-man, fully God, fully man, fully divine, fully human. He was crucified because they saw it as blasphemy. Jesus confesses his divinity at the very moment, the right moment, when he knows he'll be crucified for it. That's what Son of Man means. And then Jesus says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Behold, now the hour has come. The time has come. With Judas' departure, the trap was set. The trap has been sprung. And it launches the most significant sequence of events in history. Look at verse 33. Things take a dark, somber tone. You know, the disciples had followed Jesus closely 24-7 for three years. And Jesus says, you know what? Um, I'm about to leave and you cannot follow. Where I'm going, at least right now, you cannot go with me. Whenever we, my wife and I, leave our little girls, we're going somewhere like, hey, we're going to go on a date or we're going to go out of town or whatever. And uh, sorry, mommy and daddy need, a da- mommy and daddy need some date time together. <laughs> And, and you can't go with us. Why? Why, Daddy? Why can't we go with you? Well, because we need, we need a date. We need time together. Well, but, but can we go? No, 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 you, you can't go with us. And they're all sad. And, you know, that's for like a night. Jesus is very clearly saying, hey, I'm about to depart from this life. You cannot go with me. 
And the disciples, as expected, are deeply saddened. They love Jesus, and Jesus so clearly loves them. He calls them little children, not to demean them, but to encourage them. It's a term of affection, a term of endearment. Sometimes I call my little girls my tinies. Now, that works when they're eight and five. Oh, my tinies, come here, give, give daddy a hug, my tinies. But you better believe I'm going to do that when they're 38 and 35 and give us grandchildren. I don't care. We're, they're always going to be my tinies. And it's a term of affection. Their daddy loves them. They love their daddy. And you could so clearly hear in Jesus' voice here his love, his affection for his disciples. These words from Jesus sound like the words of someone who knows he's about to die and he's talking to his loved ones before he departs because, folks, they are. He is. And they know that, and so they're grieved. And in the midst of their grief over his departure, Jesus gives this powerful new commandment. Look at verse 34. A new commandment, love. New commandment, love. With a new covenant, you would have to establish a new law, a new framework. You have to set the terms. So you look throughout the Bible, all the different covenants, and when God would enact a covenant with Moses or with Abraham or with Adam, with Noah, there would be rules. There would be a framework. There would be a a law to establish that covenant. In the new covenant between God and man through Jesus, love is the law of Christ. Love is the norm. Love sets the terms. Love is the framework. It's a new commandment, love. But is it really a new commandment? I mean, Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes that in Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as yourself. So is it really a new commandment? Love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Is it really new? Well, he's not given a new, fresh, never-before-heard command, but an old command in a new way. So, first point is new commandment, love. Second, new approach as Jesus loved. This kind of love was new in its scope. So, in the Old Testament, they were to love their neighbor as much as they love themselves. We all love ourselves, and there's no denying it. We love ourselves more than anyone else. It's actually the human condition. When sin entered into the world, self became chief. Self became highest uh, object of worship in our lives. We love ourselves. That's why it's so radical when Jesus says, hey, you need to love others as much as you love yourself. Ooh, that is, I love myself a lot. We love ourselves a lot. Is that, how can we do that? Well, Jesus takes it up a notch. Jesus ratchets it up. Jesus sets the bar much higher, substantially. He says, okay, you, you love others as much as you love yourself. You know what? Let's take it up a notch. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So our measure of love now is not love for ourselves, but Jesus' love for us. So how has Jesus loved us? If you look at the screen here, how has Jesus loved us? Well, in love, Jesus spoke truth to others. In love, Jesus spoke truth to others. Do we have that on the screen? Nope. <laughs> All right, well, how has Jesus loved us? In, lo in 
love. Jesus spoke truth to others. First of all, truth, there it is. Truth without love. We've all, we've all known people who are all truth, 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 truth. They're, this, they're the truth tellers. They, no matter what, I don't care if it hurts anyone, I, I am all about the truth. But truth without love, it is hard. It's harsh. It's cold. It's calloused. Folks, it's legalism. Truth without love is legalism. But on the flip side, of the other end of the spectrum, love without truth, it's fickle, it's haphazard, it's floofy, like, oh, love is love. You just, you do you, you be whatever you want to be. Love without truth leads to licentiousness. So on one end, truth without love, legalism. The other end, love without truth, licentiousness. Jesus spoke truth in love. Second, through love, Jesus served others. Jesus demonstrated Galatians 5.13 perfectly. Through love, serve one another. In fact, he demonstrated that by washing the feet of his, just the disgusting feet of his disciples. I mean, we have some smelly, okay, maybe I'm just speaking for me. We have some smelly feet nowadays. Imagine 2,000 years ago. And here is Jesus on his knees demonstrating the posture of a servant, washing the feet of his disciples, which he says pointed to what he was about to do on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, but it also pointed to how we are to interact with one another, serving one another in love. We lay aside our preferences, our wants, our desires. We pray and seek opportunities to wash the feet of others, getting humbled, lowly serving to the least expected in uncomfortable ways. All, mo- all motivated by love. Any other motive will fail. If you're trying to look good before others, that will fail. If you want to go feel good about yourself, that will fail. It has to be motivated by love. So through love, Jesus served others. And lastly, and most importantly, because of love, Jesus sacrificed self for the benefit of others. Jesus' command was new because it demanded a new kind of love, a love that included a willingness to die for self. Paul Washer, who is a pastor and evangelist, he says it this way. He says, you know, he's often heard Christians talk to unbelievers and they'll say, God, has a, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Which is true, right? Is that true? It's true. It's not the full gospel. So if you don't give the full gospel and you're talking to unregenerate sinners, you say, God loves you and has a plan for your life, they might respond, oh, he does? Well, that's wonderful, I love me. That's great. I mean, I I don't know how he could possibly love me more than I love me, but that's wonderful news. Oh, God has good taste. He loves me. I love me. And he has a plan for my life. That's fantastic. I have a plan for my life. So God affirms my plans. I can have my best life now. That's great. You know what? Yeah, I will take a God like that. Do you have two That's not how Jesus has loved us, folks. He doesn't affirm us in our sins. He died for us because of our sins. That's love. Could we ever understand, could we ever plumb the depths of the love of Christ? In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul says that. He says, oh, that you may just have the strength to stand as you grasp the height, the width, the depth, the length, of the love of Christ. We don't even begin to understand the infinite love of Jesus. But look at Romans 5, 5 through 8. If we could put that on the screen. Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who he has given to us. How? How has God's love been poured into us? Well, look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? This much. I used to, I remember my dad, uh, he would say, do you know how much I love you? This is when I was a little kid. I said, this much? He goes, no, no, bigger than that. This much? No, bigger than that. I would say, oh, like from that side of the room, from that wall to that much. And he would say, no, no, bigger than that. And we'd go through this whole thing. Do you know how much Jesus loved you? This much. With his arms outstretched on the cross, he is demonstrating the love of God. So we were weak. We were dead. We had no hope especially in self, but at just the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Well, folks, not, a rain, not to rain on your parade, but you, me, we are the ungodly. And God loved the unlovable, us, demonstrating that through Christ's death. So we look in John 13, and in verses 31 through 32, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are about to see me suffer and die in weakness, but this is all part of the Father's plan. I'll be glorified through this. I'll be glorified in this. Now, glory in Jesus' resurrection, that makes sense. We don't often see people rise from the dead on their own power, but glory in his death, come on now. How could a horrific death bring God glory? Or how could, as Don Carson wrote, the greatest Moment of displayed glory be in the shame of the cross. Well, glory, again, remember, glory is character revealed. It's character displayed, brilliance revealed. Think about any 80s movie. 80, the 80s were all about glory. So any 80s movie, the Rocky movies, or any, any 80s movie who had like a montage with a basketball game, and at the end of the basketball game, you know, the, the David team is up against the Goliath team, but it's neck and neck, and there's five seconds left, and you have the, the star player, the, the protagonist in the movie, and they're dribbling the basketball down, and they're watching the clock, and they shoot the ball, three, two, one, and the ball goes, and in slow-mo, it hits the rim. And then it rolls, oh, nope, and then it rolls in, and the crowd goes wild and the fans storm the court and here's the, the, the guy who just made the shot and he raises his arm and they pick him up on their shoulder and he's, you know, getting all the glory. Because glory is, again, brilliance revealed. In that moment, he is the victor. He is the overcomer. It shows who he was on the inside. Glory, the glory of God, as Rodney Whitaker says, the glory of God refers to God's own essential worth. His greatness, his power, his majesty, everything in him which calls forth our adoring reverence. The glory of God is the display of his awesome, holy character. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had been increasingly revealing his glory more and more and more until he gets to the climax of his glory, which is on the cross. In giving his life for sinners, the glory of God's gracious character is most clearly seen. The, the cross shines a light vividly, brightly on God's justice and on God's love. God's justice because God is just. He cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot 
you know, oh, you're, you, you rebelled against me, even though you were created to worship me. Ah, that's fine. God can't do that. He's just. So someone had to pay the penalty, but God is also love. He's the justifier and the just of those with faith in Christ. So on the cross, Jesus demonstrates the perfect justice of God, but also the perfect love of God. The cross reveals the glory of God's self-giving love. Self is the enemy of love. And Jesus loved the Father more than the preservation of his own life. And out of love, he submitted to the Father's will to die. He loved them. He loved us to the end. The end of what? To the end of his life. If you look at the screen, love dies to self. Love dies to self. And we're to love others like that? Come on now. We're to love others like Jesus loved, dying to self, cross kind of love? Yes. That's what makes this so new and so unprecedented and so unparalleled. Do you see how showing I love you is so much more radical than just saying I love you? Anyone can say words. Anyone can say those three words. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. But love is shown through action. Love ain't easy. That sounds like a country song, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm sure it is. Love ain't easy. Uh, Anyway, love ain't easy. Love is not an easy calling. In fact, apart from God, it's impossible. We are not capable of loving others while sacrificially lowering self. We can't. We can't do it. So how could we love one another without accepting the self-giving love of God for us? We can't. That's why 1 John 4.19 says so eloquently, so poignantly, we love because he first loved us. It's the only way we can love others. It's the only way we can love one another. So, new commandment, love. New approach, as Jesus loved. New object, one another. New object, one another. Love one another as Jesus loved. You know, this teaching must have made an indelible impression on John. John became known as the apostle of love. And get this, the word love appears 57 times in the Gospel of John, more than the other three Gospels combined. And in his first letter, his first epistle, he, he mentions it 46 times. Like 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's saying you can't like, oh God, I love you, I worship you. I can't stand that guy. I don't want anything to do with that lady. No, loving God and loving the others goes hand in hand. They are inextricably, inseparably tied together. You cannot love God if you do not love one another. You cannot love God who you cannot see if you cannot love your brother or sister who you can see. I mean, are we really even Jesus' disciples if we do not have love for one another? We love. That's what Christians do. And what kind of love are we talking about? Is it a flighty feeling? Is it a passing emotion? That's how the world views love. I'll meet with a married couple and one or both spouses will say, you know, we're just not, we've fallen out of love. To which I'll usually respond, then fall back in love. 
listen, love is not an emotion. It's not this passing, fleeting, flighty thing. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is a next step. Love is a command. You cannot command an emotion. Like, be happy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> be scared. <sighs> you, know, you can't command an emotion, but you can command an action step. And we are told over and over and over in the New Testament, love one another. Love like this is not sentimental. It's self-sacrificing. It places the needs of others before my own. So a true disciple of Jesus is one who is characterized by love, the laying down of self for the benefit of another. Again, love is defined by the cross. Paul David Tripp says it this way, the standard for our responses to one another is not just some standard of cultural niceness and human love. The standard is nothing less than the generous, sacrificial, pure, forgiving, faithful love that God so graciously showered down on us in the person of his son. So new commandment, love. New object, one another. New approach, as Jesus loved. And finally, new measurement, how will they know we belong to Jesus? How will they know that we follow him as his disciples? Is it by the size of our buildings? Is it by, uh, you know, the quality of our ministry programs? Is it by our impeccable church attendance? By the expression of our worship? No, by this. By what, Jesus? By this love for one another. All. What's the meaning of all? All, all people, the world will know that you are my disciples. So new measurement, by love, people will know we belong to Jesus. If Jesus was the embodiment of God's love, we are to be the embodiment of Christ's love. Love should be our fragrance. That's actually literally what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says we should have the aroma of Christ to some smelling like life, if they're believers, to some smelling like death. You ever been around someone who has just, just the most rank BO? <laughs> Don't lift up your hands, because you might have BO. Um, <laughs> if you're like, no, I haven't been around someone like that, you might be that person. I, I don't know, but if you've ever, you know, you ever been in a locker room, it's just a nasty smell, it's just, a, <laughs> it's repulsive, you don't want to be around like someone like that. But then when you're around potpourri, or a nice perfume. Oh, that smells nice. You want to be around that person. We are the love. We are, our, uh, love is the fragrance of Christians. Love should be our fragrance. If Jesus smelled like love, so to speak, we should smell like love. We should look like love, sound like love, act like love. Loving one another is not the goal. It's the natural outcome of our faith in Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we love Jesus, we live for Jesus, we should live like Jesus, and Jesus loved selflessly and sacrificially. And so when we love like Jesus loved, people will see Jesus in us. They'll see Jesus through us by how we treat one another. I mean, what, what kind of a witness would it be when Christians don't show love for one another? Can you imagine, I mean, that just never happens, but can you imagine it solely's and tramples on it, nullifies our witness in the world. It's hypocritical. I remember talking to an agnostic years ago, and we're just talking about Jesus, and he said, you want me to love your God when you can't even love each other. Ooh. 
That one hurt. It should hurt because truth stings. Folks, I remember years ago in the first church I served at in a small Baptist church in Texas, one Sunday night we had a business meeting. This is a church of about 100 people. And in this business meeting, I don't even remember what we got into, but one guy stood up and he started screaming at this other guy and this other guy got up and screaming at the other and then everyone stood up and they're screaming at one another. And my wife and I are in the back seat. We were, I was serving as the youth pastor at the time and I just got on my knees and my wife's guy got on her knees. We're like, what is going on? Like this is some demonic stuff and just started praying, God, forgive us. What is this? There, there, was, there was a new student who did not know Jesus who, I don't know why he would come to a business meeting <laughs> But he did, and that's the witness that, that was left. Mahama Gandhi, I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly he said this, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The genuineness of our faith walk in Jesus is tested and judged by a watching world. We can pull people to Jesus by our love for one another, or we can push people away from Jesus by our lack thereof. And so if we refuse to love one another, the world will refuse to believe in Jesus. Now conversely, what kind of witness is radical love for one another? What kind of witness is love toward others that the world doesn't expect us to love? Loving people we're not supposed to love. I remember uh, I got to, I think in 07, I got to go to Israel on just... If you have an opportunity to go to Israel, it's an amazing trip. And we're about to take the tour bus into the Palestinian territory, into Bethlehem. And so we had a Messianic uh, Jewish guide, tour guide, but Messianic Jews cannot, they're not allowed to go into Palestinian territories. Jewish people are not allowed to go in. And so they had to switch tour guides. And so it was, they were doing kind of a handoff from a Messianic Jewish tour guide to a Palestinian Christian tour guide. And I don't know if you know this, but Jews and Palestinians don't exactly get along. I mean, it's been centuries of butting heads and hating one another and war and battle. And so the Messianic Jew gets off the bus and he stands there like this. And the Palestinian Christian approaches him and they're like two or three feet from each other, just staring each other down. And we're like on the bus like, oh, it's about to go down. Like they're about to put on brass knuckles and like they're about to throw some blows. And they just stand and all of a sudden after five seconds they go, hey! And they give each other this big hug and they pull each other in and they do the thing where they kiss on each other's cheeks. And a tense moment became a beautiful moment instantly. And the world would see that and wait, 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 aren't you supposed to be enemies? What are you doing hugging and loving each other? You're supposed to be enemies. How could you love one another? I'll tell you how, through the tie that binds the love of Jesus displayed for us. Love has evangelistic power. A loving community of Jesus followers visibly authenticates the gospel. And I've seen it here at Bethel Cedar Lake. And I want to keep seeing it here. I want it to grow and grow and grow For centuries, the mutual love of Christians for one another has been the magnet that has drawn multitudes to Jesus. So, big idea is this. Love one another sacrificially and selflessly as Jesus loves us. In 1 Corinthians 13, there's this passage where it's actually known as the love chapter. You might have heard it in a wedding. So they, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. And it's a beautiful chapter. Do you realize the context actually 
is talking about Christians loving one another. It's the, it's, the context is Christian community. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I surrender my body to the flames and give all I possess to the poor but have not love, I gain nothing. So can you imagine, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to Scotland to the Blarney Castle and kissed the Blarney Stone. I got to do that about six years ago. It's disgusting because you're kissing something that everybody is kissing. But supposedly you do that and it gives you the gift of eloquence or something like that. Imagine if you had perfect eloquence, perfect speech, perfect, perfect persuasion. You knew every language in God's green earth, every dialect, and you had, you knew heavenly language. You could speak in angelic languages. You had all that, but you didn't have love. You see where I'm going with this, right? You might want to cover your ears. This is what you sound like. That, sorry for whoever plays the drums. Hopefully I didn't mess that up, but that's annoying, right? Like, ha, ha, ha. It's nothing but a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. And I don't want to be a clanging cymbal, folks. I don't want us to be a clanging cymbal. I want us to be and have the aroma of Jesus. I want us to be a church that loves selflessly and sacrificially as Jesus loves. Gossip, grumbling, complaining, backbiting, bitterness, unforgiveness, cliques, in-groups, disrespecting and demonizing others, sharp words, Radical individualizing, tribal wars that we've seen over the last few years. Judging others from a pedestal. Folks, that doesn't smell like Jesus. That smells like the world, and the world smells like B.O. I mean, just look at social media. Man, sometimes such a cesspool for so-called Christians and how we are responding to other Christians. The love of Jesus has a beautiful scent one of laying down yourself for the benefit of others. Jesus' love comes down from the pedestal and climbs onto the cross. So how are you laying down self for the benefit of others? Are you going to the cross or are you clinging to your pedestal?